Hey there, and welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Timberlake Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. Our mission is to reach, feed, and release people to be the hands and feet of Jesus. You can learn more at our website, TimberlakeUMC.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Friends, our text for this Sunday, the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. We invite you to grab your Bible and open it up and read Follow along as I read for all of us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Come to him, a living stone, Though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Happy Independence Day, friends. I hope your holiday has been good. I am so thankful on a day like this to live in the United States. Uh, But I will say it's been tough lately, being an American, and I wonder if you've felt that too. It seems like there's a lot of things going wrong in our communities and in our nation. I've noticed there's this tendency among Americans, among all people, really, uh, when things go wrong, we blame each other. Have you noticed this? I bet you have. Uh, When there's a problem, we assign blame, which is uh, obvious lately because we've had more than our share of problems, a struggling economy, a pandemic, violence, riots, political division, and in each case, one person blames another, right? It's the Democrats' fault, it's the Republicans' fault, it's China's fault, it's the President's fault. We blame black people, we blame white people, we blame the church, we blame atheists, and on and on. And on the one hand, it really is understandable because this is part of how we make sense of the world. When something goes wrong, we want to know why. And there's a problem, so let's figure out what caused the problem. Let's figure out who caused the problem so we can fix it or so we can prevent it next time. And, and the truth is, if we lived in a world without cause and effect, there would be chaos. But something terrible happens when we mix this desire to understand why things happen with our tendency toward sin. 
so that the first thing we do is not to look in the mirror, but to point the finger. All of which, all of which makes the incarnation of God even more extraordinary. Many of you know this story 2,000 years ago on a quiet evening just outside the sleepy little town of Bethlehem. An angel appeared to some shepherds and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Jesus was God in the flesh, which is amazing enough. But then we learn that the reason he came into this world is to deal with our human problems, to deal with our sickness, not only the sickness of the body, but also the sickness of the soul. And I want to think with you today about the way in which Jesus deals with the sickness of our souls, the way in which Jesus approaches this essential human problem. This is amazing. Instead of putting the blame on us, where it belongs, he took it on himself. He took the sin of the world, he took our guilt, and on the cross he put it on himself. This blameless, sinless Son of God takes the blame that we deserve. He allowed himself to die so that we may live. He allowed himself to become sin so that we may be forgiven. And, now this is huge, he became the bridge that reconnects and reconciles us to God and to each other. Today we begin a new sermon series. It's called Covenant Relationships. Last month we read through Exodus as a church and we were reminded of the covenant that God made with his people, first with Abraham and Sarah, and then later with Moses and with the Israelites, and now with all the people who follow Jesus. So we're talking this month about covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is the nature of God's relationship with God's people. Covenant means simply promise. Covenant means promise. And so to Abraham and Sarah, God promised descendants and land. To Noah, God promised never to flood the earth again. Uh, to Moses, God promised freedom. And to everyone who trusts Jesus, God promises eternal life. Now, the amazing thing here, friends, we talk about covenant, is that God promises to keep a relationship with his people regardless of their failures and their shortcomings. Even when we disobey God's law, God still includes us. Even when we hurt God, God still loves us. Which means, which means, covenant is incredibly countercultural. The world doesn't live like that. Uh, the world that we live in, friends, operates not on the basis of covenant, but on the basis of contract. And I know sometimes we think of these words as synonyms. They're very different, very different. So contract means I am free to treat you as well or as poorly as you treat me. Contract means if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, I'm free to walk away from the arrangement. Now, that works great when it comes to hiring a teenager to mow your lawn. If he shows up and mows, you pay him. And if he doesn't, 
you don't pay them, right? That is fantastic, that's the way it works, and that's wonderful when it comes to lawn care. And yet contracts are woefully short when it comes to human relationships. So let's take marriage, for example. We talk about marriage as a covenant from God. Here's a question, do you suppose that your spouse is ever going to let you down? You suppose your spouse is ever gonna hurt your feelings? You suppose your spouse is going to leave the dirty socks on the floor for the hundredth time or the thousandth time? And you say, without a doubt, preacher, yes, over and over again, yes. And so God says to us, does that mean you should quit the relationship? Now, if you are in a contract, yes, you can quit the relationship. But if you are in a covenant, if this is a God-centered, Christ-infused marriage, then the relationship continues. And so the contracts of the world say, well, look, I'll do for you as long as you do for me. But the covenants of God say, I will love you no matter how you treat me. That's the way God loves us. And that's the way Jesus commands us to love other people. When we do that, life is beautiful. Uh, but when we don't do that, life can be wretched. And it feels to many of us that recently we've had a lot more of the latter than of the former in our marriages, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our churches, in our country. Our relationships are broken. We see it in the news. We feel it in our hearts. There is a brokenness about us right now. And so I'd like to suggest to you, friend, that the problems that we see, violence and political division and hunger and poverty and the mistrust of our leaders, all of these problems at their core are a problem of broken relationships. We have broken our covenant with God and with people. Now, the good news is Christ can restore our covenants. God can fix this. But I wonder if the people of God are willing I wonder if the people of God are willing to repent, if we are willing to quit blaming other people and to get on our knees and to confess our sin and to beg God to help us. Now, help is here, friends, and help is here in the scriptures. God has given us a word already about how we are to keep the covenants. And so our preaching text today comes from 1 Peter this is the disciple Peter who wrote a letter to the churches in Asia Minor. And what I need you to understand, this was a tough time for the church. Uh, the, the Christians, the, the people of the way, they were struggling just to make it. There was social tensions in their community. There was fear about the future. Uh, the church was being criticized. So this was a time uh, when it was against the law to follow Jesus. There were a ton of pressure on the people of God. And so Peter starts his letter like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is a letter from a church leader to church people. Okay, that really matters. Who the author is and who the audience is. This really matters because when you hear these words and as you begin to digest them, they are going to sting you, and they are going to hurt your feelings, and they are going to offend you. 
And so do not give into the temptation to blame, to take these words as a condemnation of someone else when in fact they are addressed to us. Friends, the Bible is not a weapon that we are to use to attack other people. It's more like a mirror that we are to hold up so that we can see ourselves as we truly are. Also remember this, uh, we do not do any of this under our own power, but as Peter says, we are sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus. The Spirit of God is the one who gives us power to live out the gospel. Now we know that this gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, we say that it comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfort. Okay, get your head around that for a second. The gospel, the same gospel of Christ, both comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. And you are about to find out which one you are. Peter begins chapter 2 of his letter. Rid yourselves of all malice and all guile, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words... Brothers and sisters, it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. If you're born again like, like this infant, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, quit making excuses. There is no room in your life for malice or envy or slander. And, and notice that the particular sins Peter lists are the things that destroy relationships. Meanness, hypocrisy, Deceit, envy, and for goodness sake, stop the slander. It's not okay for disciples to insult or libel or smear or disparage or blame. Rid yourselves of, Peter says, rid yourselves of these things. Friends, I cannot say it any more plainly than this. Mature Christians do not blame others. Mature Christians do not blame others. If as we go in this country from one crisis to the next, your instinct is to point fingers at someone else, then it is time for you to grow up. Here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. Verse 4. Peter says, Come to him, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. Peter's saying, look, Christ is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. He is the center. He is strong and powerful like a stone, but, but not cold or static because he's a living stone. He is alive and he is life-giving. And the invitation is, come to him. Come to Christ. Bring yourself into deeper relationship with Jesus. God is calling you. God is calling you. And what you will discover is that only through Jesus can your relationships with other people be healed. Verse 5 says, like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let your life be built into a spiritual house. 
Let God use you as a stonemason uses a stone to build something that is beautiful and meaningful and worthwhile. And now the images in the passage begin to, to pile up. Stones are built into houses and houses into temples, which means human beings become the dwelling place of Almighty God. And we say, Lord, it seems impossible to keep these covenants. It's so hard. And God says, yes, but I'm with you. And I am dwelling inside of you. And then Peter reminds us of the need for spiritual sacrifices. He says, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. A spiritual sacrifice, friends, is not an, an empty church ritual. Uh, nor is it something that we only do on Sunday mornings as we pass the offering plate. Spiritual sacrifice is a social ethic. It is a way of life for the disciples of Jesus. You see, when you agree to let Jesus be the Lord of your life, you give up your personal rights. You know, all these Christian people that I see right now complaining about their personal rights being violated uh, by having to wear a mask or whatever it may be, you are not thinking like a Christian. Disciples of Jesus don't go around demanding rights for themselves. To be a disciple is to forget yourself, to, to make a spiritual sacrifice of your own personal preferences and comforts for the sake of the covenant. And here's the difference. Skipping ahead to verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, friends, God's people are chosen and set apart for God's purposes. We, we are to be a royal priesthood. Royal because we're children of the king. Hello. And priests because our job is to connect people to the God who loves them. That's what priests do. And we are set apart for this work. Now notice, we're not set above. We're not better than anyone else. But we are set apart. We are called to be different. Holiness is a high calling. It means rejecting sin. It means embracing the difficult standard of discipleship. It means putting away meanness and hypocrisy and deceit and envy and blame. It means putting on Christ. It means what's okay for everybody else is not okay for us. Now, I have this conversation with my kids all the time. And they say to me, but dad, my friends get to say cuss words. Uh, but dad, the kids in my class, they get to wear $200 sneakers. Ah, but you, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then Peter finishes the passage with verse 10. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
One of the sins of the evangelical church in the West is our individualism. We, we tell the gospel in a way that is for saving individual souls. And friends, the message of Jesus is undeniably personal, but it is not individual. The idea of the ideal, rather, of the individual has a lot more to do with American priorities. It has a lot more to do with enlightenment concepts than it has anything to do with the kingdom of God. And it's right here uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2. In providing for our salvation, one of the things that God saves us from is our individualism. In Christ, God saves us from being isolated and alone and separate. Once you were not a people. Now, notice the way Peter uses the plural. It's almost awkward in the English translation. Uh, once you are not a people. Okay, so he's not saying once you are not a person. Right? You've always been a person. We've always been human beings. He's saying once you were individuals. Once you were isolated and alone. And you were separated from God and from one another. Once you were individuals, but now... You are a community. Brothers and sisters, the gospel was never intended to be so individualistic. God's covenant was made with a community, not with a single person. Salvation in Christ you know, is understood in many ways. There, there are many layers of meaning. Salvation is rescue. It is forgiveness. It is healing. It is resurrection. And salvation also means reconciliation. We are saved from our isolation and from our separation. We are saved from the tyranny of self. Because of Jesus, our relationships are being restored. Yes, with God, but also with each other. And so when we have division in our country, when we have brokenness in our lives, when our community is so divided along lines of race, when our community is so divided along lines of politics, when our community is so divided along lines of economics, it reveals our misunderstanding and our misapplication of the covenant. We cannot say we love God and yet fail to love our brother and our sister. Now, please hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God wants to erase the things that make us unique or, or take away our differences, not at all. Your personality, your, your passions, your talents, your friendships, your skin color, your family heritage, all of these things are gifts of God. And so the way to solve the problem of individualism is not to erase who you are. It is to embrace the covenant that makes us a community together. Friends, during this series, we're going to take some time to flesh out some of the implications of this covenant theology. And so we've got three more weeks of this. And next week, we're going to talk about keeping covenants in our marriage and with our family and our friends. And so I'm going to remind you that if these relationships are based on contract, uh, but not on covenant, then it will be easy for us to just walk away. But if these relationships are based on covenant, then we stick in together. 
for the long haul. In week three, we're going to talk about our covenant with the poor, with, with these folks who struggle with the, the economic implications of, of, uh, of our current days. And we're going to unpack what the gospel says about that, particularly at this current time of economic struggle. And I'm going to remind you that if our relationships with our neighbors are based not on contracts, but on covenants, that means we are not going to sit by and wait for the federal government to fix the questions of hunger and poverty. We ourselves are going to do something to care for our neighbors who are in need. And then in week four, we're going to talk about covenants that cross racial boundaries, about what it means for white people and black people to together reflect the kingdom of God here on earth. And I'm going to remind you that if our relationships with one another are based not on contracts but on covenants, we will not spend our time blaming people for the racial injustices in this country. Instead, we will love our neighbors, be they black or brown or white or whatever color they may be, because God has loved all of us. Friends, there's a beautiful diversity in the kingdom of God. There are people of all colors and all ages and all levels of wealth. There are men and women and girls and boys, people from every tribe and nation and tongue. All the sinners and all the saints who trust in Jesus are one community with him. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Now, go and offer that mercy to your neighbor in the name of Jesus Christ.